Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah Ali. And we are very excited to welcome to Democracy-ish for the first time, uh, brilliant author, tweeter, and author of the new book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Anand Girdardas. And, and Anand, uh, pleasure for you to finally join us. Uh, you are a fellow South Asian man who I heard is in his 40s now and still has retained his hair. So you and me are both unicorns among our people. For those of you who don't know, uh, Anand's <laughs> hair is top shelf. Mashallah, as we say, no evil eye. I'm bottom shelf. Uh, he is way more stylish than me. Uh, and it's proof that you can become a Desi uncle and still be cool. If you ever had doubts, look to Anand uh, and his frequent appearances on MSNBC. And in addition to the persuaders, which we're going to talk about, uh, you all have to pick up his, his book, um, Winners Take All. The Elite Trade of Changing the World that came out a couple years ago, and also True American Murder, Murder and Mercy in Texas. And Anand, we are uh, recording this delightful conversation about three mm-hmm. days before, four days before the consequential 22 midterms. And your book, the, the one that you just came out with, uh, it's about interviewing those individuals, politicians, activists, communicators, uh, who are at the front lines fighting for the hearts and minds to save our fledgling democracy, right? And so right before we started talking, you know, Danielle and I expressed, I guess, some some cynicism, some apprehension, I think it's safe to say. Uh, we're looking at the polls. Everything's on a knife's edge. Uh, some people are saying it's going to be a Republican wave. Some people are saying Democrats might barely hold down to the Senate. But what is giving you hope uh, that anyone can be persuaded at this mm. juncture where people seem so locked in to their political tribe and living in their algorithms and in their disinformation bubbles. Yeah. You know, the other day I heard um, a, a quote from a woman who works around the world on uh, eliminating child marriage for girls around the world. Right. And so like, you know, the midterms coming up Tuesday, like we feel pretty dire, like 
imagine that woman's world, right? She's hmm. operating in a world where girls are being married at seven years old and have been for centuries in their societies. And this woman's job is to go and, and try to end that, right? In places where that's totally the normal thing and everybody's down with it. And she said this thing that really resonated with me. I don't even know if it's her own quote or like a famous quote that she was just repeating, but she said, you know, we overestimate how much we can change in the short term and we underestimate how much we can change in the long term. Mm. Right. And the hope that I have in a moment like this is not for Tuesday. And of course, everyone watching this will know what we don't, which is what happened. Uh, I think Tuesday is going to be very hard. I think this moment is hard. This year is hard. This era is hard. You know, if Tuesday is a good day for Democrats, it's still going to be pretty bleak. I mean, Lula won in Brazil, and the amount he won by was definitely not satisfying to me, given that he was up against straight fascism. It was like 50.7, right? 50.7% of the vote. Yes. Correct. Like, you never want to be in a dead heat on fascism, you know? (laughs) Um, But... I also think if you look at our society and you take a longer view, Mm. the changes that have happened in our lifetime are remarkable. And we sometimes forget that when we're up against these dire things, right? That the change in gay rights in terms of laws and norms is a moral revolution in our time that, you know, puts all of our ancestors to shame. I mean, gay people have been around forever and basically no generation until ours treated them well anywhere in the world. And in a remarkable increase in consensus, like that happened within our lifetimes. And we are all very, very young, as you can see from this video. Um, You know, I think if you look, again, take that longer view of um, the status of people of color in the United States, in a country that has been, you know, from its founding, designed to exclude non-white people and the actual progress that has been made. It's unsatisfying. There's all these new problems coming up. But like, to be very clear that status has really changed and has fomented a backlash from people who are mad at how much progress there's been, right? And we don't often tell the story that way. We tell the story as though the fascists are like some new, exciting new movement. Like they're a barnacle on progress that we're making and we have made. They're pissed about our victories, you know? If you think about the amount of progress that's been made on gender, Right. I mean, again, our ancestors are all shamed, like the, the thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history. And, you know, 90 something percent of like truly empowered women who've ever lived live right now in this time, able to do all the things that women are able to do. So when you look at that sweep, to me, we are and have been doing a lot to build a bigger we to make the founding words of this country actually true for the people that it was claimed to be true for, to extend the blessings of liberty. And I think because of that progress, there is right now a minority faction in this country that wants to burn it all down rather Mm -hmm. than share the country. And my way of being both clear-eyed about them and the threat they represent and hopeful as a practice is to remember that that minority faction is old. You know, is new bodies, old faction, right? They have opposed abolition of slavery. They have opposed labor reforms in the Industrial Revolution to give workers power. They opposed the New Deal 
Social Security, unions. They opposed women's suffrage. They opposed integration. They opposed the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Acts. They opposed, in 1965, opening immigration to people from non-European countries. So, you know, Waj, you and my family could like emigrate yeah. to the country despite not being from, you know, Germany. Um, and basically, and it sounds so counterintuitive to say this to the kind of audience listening to this, these people have lost every single solitary fight I just mentioned. Like, they've, in the long run, right? Like, they've had good runs, they've had good years, they've had good decades. But like in the long run, we got all those things. And like, look at the three people on this podcast. And like, they've lost every single fight. And I think right now, this is a last gasp moment for that minority faction that is still clinging to power, that still has things like the Senate and the Electoral College, these advantages that are propping up a shrinking white majority. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. But I try to just keep my eye on the horizon of what we are doing, the victories we have made, and the fact that they are reacting to us. We are not reacting to them. They are living in our world. We're not living in their world. And we're going to have to persuade a lot of people who are still right now, and we can get into this, still actually not quite committed to their story or our story. It doesn't feel like that, but there are such people. Um, there are more of them than we think. That was one of the big things I learned reporting this book. Uh, and I think we got to you know, fight to persuade them if we're going to, to kind of beat back this rebellion of backlash. You know, I, I, I listened to what you are, what you are saying and it, it was like a, a, a little um, blossom of hope came up in, in my heart. But then I think about the conversation that I had right before I came on the show today with my 85 year old white neighbor who served in the U S military, who is, you know, in all, in all purposes, uh, you know, lives in New York city is a liberal. And he says to me, Danielle, you know, Americans really don't want to give up anything. He's like, Biden is doing, you know, a decent job with what he's been given. And he's like, and they don't want to give up anything. He's mm. like, everything for them is about immediate gratification. And so the story that you're telling about abolition, which is one that I often hearken to when I find myself in my darkest moments, is to think about those people that had this audacious dream and idea of abolishing a policy that was centuries old, right? And I think about my ancestors and, you know, you mentioned 1965 Immigration Act. My family came to the United States in 1970, just five years after that was passed from Jamaica. And I think about, you know, all the ways in which progress has been made and that you're saying that this other side is losing. But at the same time, I, I, I look at the rise in violence. Mm. I look at what what Hitler and the Nazis didn't have was Fox News and QAnon and Newsmax and all of these outlets that are readily spewing and creating this wild echo chamber of hate. We, in those times, in those marked moments of progress, we, the, the, these communities, these generations were sitting in front of and listening to the same news. And they didn't question what they were hearing. 
They didn't then jump on to their different chat rooms and 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 within their within their DMs and within all of these other alternative sources of information and find these groups that were championing what they were listening to in their head. So I wonder how how does persuasion of the nature and the mass that we need happen? When the forces that are driving our information and disinformation are much greater than they were at any other time in our nation's history and in Mm. the world's history. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a lot of differences, right? And like, it's, it's funny how to think about it because in some ways in the olden days, these kind of leaders actually had more power in the sense that they could speak to 65 million people on a radio broadcast at the same time. Like that world is gone. Joe Biden cannot speak to 65 million people. Maybe at a democratic convention, you know, like no one can speak to a whole nation anymore, right? So that kind of mass synchronized thing or these radio things or like, you know, fewer channels consolidated people. So, So there's less of that. And what there is, is a million, like an ecosystem media where you can have propaganda you, on Fox News, you can have like right-wing outlets, you can have social media, and, and it's, it's much harder to actually control because it's just so many different things and it's just a, it's a whack-a-mole problem. Um, and I think it has created like an epistemological crisis um, of persuasion, which is like basically people not even knowing the same stuff or having the same mm-hmm. reality or living in in delusions. I mean, 43 million Americans now believe in the QAnon conspiracy, mm. which essentially means that you have a, you know, a kind of cult like the Moonies in the 70s, but it's a dispersed online cult of 43 million people. I just have to quickly say that is considered a national security threat by the FBI, which has already radicalized peoples to commit violence. And now Donald Trump is openly embracing it both on Truth Social and at his rallies, just for people to know. And there's no question that it is essentially a, a cult, except for, you know, it doesn't have like IRL meetups in, you know, and hangouts in the same way or physical location, but it's a new kind of cult. You know, I think that said, um, for the Persuaders book, I, I sought out persuaders, people who are doing this work on the ground of trying to change minds and, and what you know a lot of organizers call base building, right? Which is not just, you know, hey, Danielle, can you just, do you mind just voting for, you know, John Fetterman right now? Like, sorry, I've never reached out to you before. And I, you know, <laughs> can I have five bucks? And can you vote for John Fetterman? Bye. Mm-hmm. That's sort of, like yep. I feel like where we are, a hundred percent. With the, with the um, subject header, hey, hey, or <laughs> or crisis, Danielle, and you're falling asleep on the job. You know that guy, right? That, like those are like, yeah. We should just do a later. We should just like make up democratic just, emails. Yes, <laughs> we've um, gotten both. I've literally gotten both of those. Yeah, and I'm like, hey, yeah. Adam Schiff is messaging me. Nope, he's not. He's like, hey. It's like, who Waj Ahat. Why, why are you such a fuckface, Waj? It's like, who's writing these Democratic Party emails? <laughs> hey, piece of shit. Do you like democracy? Wow, yeah. God, like, I'm depressed yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> like, Democratic Party emails, like, go back to your country, get $5 and come back. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and then give it to us. 
Yeah, but those are like the moderate. Those are like the moderate, like I think what they used to call the blue, like the blue dogs. Um, so to to go back, I think there is a when I study these organizers in particular, and this is really in many ways a book about organizers, which is a different thing from activists, a different thing from electoral campaigners. I think organizers in many ways have the moral passion of activists. They have the you know they're not they're not like you know, uh, compromisers by nature. They, they want big things. They're, they have a lot of the same goals. They can they come up with activists in some ways they call themselves activists also, but what organizers are very obsessed with is base building, which is like, mm. are we pulling more people in to a kind of durable worldview that is going to keep benefiting our side over and over again? Right. So I would distinguish mm. vote for John Fetterman from like, are you excited about multiracial democracy? Yes. Right. Yep. Like, yep. are you excited about multiracial democracy? Is gonna that like we that's the yes we actually need people in, and then mm. Senate races and stuff is like downstream of that, right? right? So, so campaigners are just trying to like get you into a particular race or get some money, but the organizers I'm writing about are thinking about I don't know I don't know what percentage of Americans would say they're excited about that today, like and they they just kind of want that to like grow by I don't know three percent a year for the next decade. And they think like, we'll be okay if that could happen, right? Um, that's kind of what happened on gay rights. I mean, actually mm. much faster than that. I, mean, tw I think it went from the 20s to the 70s or 80s, you know, since the mid 90s, right? And like, we all remember, old enough to remember, like, like there was a time when like, no one thought that was okay, except very few people. Right? I mean, look what happened to Ellen when she came out. I was in yeah. high school, it was late 90s. Her career was destroyed. Right. I mean, so, even even before that, you can just I mean, to 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 that point, I was on the forefront of the the fight for marriage equality. And, you know, we hearken back to the times when you had Reagan who allowed hundreds of thousands of gay people to die literally in the streets, wouldn't utter the word gay. Right. Um, and believe that HIV AIDS was a, you know, a, a, the a gift from God. Right. Like mm. the, the I mean, this this was rational thought that is the 1980s. But please go ahead. And so, and, and I think today, if you <clears throat> went to Mike Pence or Donald Trump or, you know, whoever, whichever extremist leader you want and said, like, is it OK for people to be gay? I don't think any of those people would say it's not OK for people to be gay. Their position is about marriage, <clears throat> which given the spectrum of like where we were in the 90s, like it is a settled issue for all intents and purposes that that it is like that that these are humans among us and it is that was not settled in the 90s right so again there's always more work to do but i think sometimes we progressives are not great at like counting victories and counting like the way in which mm. the spectrum of the conversation has moved and we're now arguing over here instead of arguing about something different and so base building that organizers think about is is like that the same kind of thing that happened on on the gay you know gay rights issue with multi prongs as you know right there was a court strategy there was a legislative strategy there was a cultural will, will and grace cultural strategy right and all of it got us there same thing on the abolition of slavery moral suasion political efforts war in the 19th century and studying these organizers helped me understand that there is a group of people uh, in between the polarized extremes. Like, let's say the polarized extremes, uh, the way these folks think about it, 
is like 20% and 20%, right? Those are not the only people with strong opinions, but what the, the 20% on the two polls represent is people who not only have a strong opinion, but hold the strong opinion strongly, which is to say they could talk to you about it for 20 minutes at a party, right? Like mm-hmm. their, their strong border thing is not shallow. It's like they've watched a lot of YouTube videos. They have gone to meetings about it. They've read books about it. Like it's not surface deep. It's, it's considered, it's part of a larger worldview that fits the pieces fit together. You're not going to like flick it uh, away that stance with a conversation or with an ad or, or, or with, you know, uh, it, it come and, and the same thing on the progressive side, right? You're not going to talk uh, diehard progressive into the idea of maybe we don't all need health insurance. Like that's, they've, they've come to that 20% has come to that view from reflection consideration. They basically have a worldview, right? And then in the telling of these organizers, their mental model is like, there's then 60% of people, right? In between those 20 and 20, who they may be quite polarized in the sense that they may quite regularly vote for one side or the other, but they don't, the roots of the tree do not go that deep. Meaning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when circumstances change, which could be a shift in the economy, a lot of abundance, a lot of scarcity, a lot of inflation, a war, a 9-11, um, when a really awful politician comes along or a really amazing politician comes along, um, when they have a child who challenges their worldview because of who the child is, these mm-hmm. kind of things. That group in the, in the 60% in the middle is capable doesn't mean they always do, but it's capable of toggling into a very progressive understanding of the world under the right atmospheric conditions and capable of toggling into a very conservative understanding of the world, right? So a couple of like quick examples there that I think we all can relate to. When I think we all know people who, when they see the caravan border story being amplified on Fox News, they go immediately to a I'm talking about folks in that middle, not the diehards, right? Mm-hmm. Just like more normie, moderate voters. They go straight to a place of like strong border. This is, this is out of hand. Like that scares them. Criminals, and, rapists, invaders. Right? But you will remember that when family separation was happening under Trump, a yes. lot of people in that same group toggled into a very progressive way of looking at mm-hmm. that issue for a time. Mm-hmm. Right? I have for kids two too. I have kids too. Look at this. This is inhuman. This isn't who we are was the consistent refrain. This is not who we are. This and is that was not a are. progressive uprising. Yep. This is not who we are is a very norm, like normie middle vote, right? And it's, mm-hmm. of course, based mm-hmm. on very problematic things about who we really are. But, but it's, a good, right. it's a good thing. That's what it looks like, right? Another example, um, you know, like that, that whole false thing that Obama's victory, victories were the result of racial progress, not true. Like, I actually think Obama's victory was the result of Obama being so compelling that he won yep. a significant share of the racist vote. Which, and also also on the back of eight years of utter disaster of the Bush yes, administration. But like, I just think a lot of racist people really like Barack Obama, which is not <laughs> inconsistent. Like, if no, you just understand it makes how- them feel good about them. That's the thing, is that Barack yes. Obama, liking Barack Obama, made them feel good about themselves. Yes. I am the person that people have said <laughs> is undereducated, is, you know, not up with the times. And Barack Obama embraced me and saw me. And so by virtue of that, I'm not racist. That yep. was that was the feeling that he that and, he and provided. also it's what Ginny Thomas's family said about Clarence Thomas. Oh, he's one of the good ones. 
Why can't they all be like him? Please, you don't know. So I think, like with Clarence him, I think Tom. there was that. There, there, there was like with Obama. There was sort of the uh, what Danielle said. Uh, sorry, sorry, like, Anand. I always trigger Danielle when I mention Ginny Thomas. Like she yeah, kind of I mean, vomits in her mouth. We're all we're all very triggered by Dan, uh, by Ginny Thomas right now. Um, I think with Obama there was so there was what you just said. There was like I think for some of those middle of the road voters, there was like oh I'm I'm I can't be racist if I vote for him. So there was like mm. a personal redemption. I think there are others who didn't even necessarily think about it uh, that way. I I think there were people. I mean, I heard so many stories of like people on canvassing phone calls using the N word while telling the canvasser they were voting for him. Wow. What? Wow. Yes. Like this is it. You should look it up. There's like so many stories about this. And this was like, the Obama campaign was like smart enough and pragmatic to like, no, like that's when, they, that's when they knew they were going to win. Right. Cause they, it wasn't that people, what you described as like a maybe more white liberal thing, which is like, right, oh, right, or, right. Or, or just like, oh, like I, at least having an ideal of being not racist. Right. See, I was right, Danielle. My cynicism was right. He's not one I of those. I think there's another group that was like, no, 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 no. I am racist. <laughs> but but I'm I like still him. voting for that. But I like that one. But He's I like the magical one. Right? Mm. And like, power to you, man. Like, if that's that's what I'm talking Like, that's what, the, mm. this, that's 60% of the group that is persuadable. They will go on vibes. Like, they will go with someone who makes them feel mm. a certain way. I, I talk to so many Bernie People at Bernie rally. There you go. Older that, that's why I wanted guy. to bring up the Bernie voters. I, the, like to the equivalent of this for Bernie, like there's so many different permutations, but it's the same pattern. For Bernie, it was older white guys yep. at rallies who'd be like, I don't like this democratic socialism thing, right? I'm, I'm a capitalist. I'm an American and I'm a capitalist. But I kind of feel like Bernie's the only one who fights for people like me. There you go. Right? So, so you have this kind of like feeling and then... But just Bernie made certain people feel like only he was telling the truth and fighting people like them. And so that group in the middle, at our peril, we tell ourselves no one's mind can change. It's often because we're not doing a great job because there are so many examples from Obama to Bernie Sanders to, frankly, Donald Trump the other way to the gay rights victories over generation where like a lot of those people actually do move. They do move. It's a lot of work. But there are strategies. And, and I think the persuaders, one way to understand it is as a, as a kind of playbook through these life stories of these moves that actually do work on that group. From the New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that force David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. 
Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Anand, I want to connect the dots here because, you know, you mentioned the Bernie voters. But while you all were talking about it, I was like, Bernie voters, Fetterman voters, right? A lot of these folks will literally go for Trump or the racist right wing. But once you come with the right message and say, actually, your enemy is the elitists who are screwing the rest of you. And we need yep. a race labor, uh, if you will, Avengers to come together and go against the 1% who's coming after you. These guys go, oh, I'll go for this Fetterman guy. Oh, I'll go for Bernie. Oh, I'll go for X, Y, and Z. And you have a chapter in your book called The Art of Messaging, connecting to what Danielle's saying. And I think the frustration of many Democratic voters that, that Democrats sometimes, they have the majority, they have the numbers, they're, they're on the right side of the issue. Republicans kind of understand that uh, politics is downstream of culture and they message accordingly. Uh, we've had uh, Anat Shankar Osorio on our show before. Uh, who you profile as one of the persuaders, especially in this mm -hmm. uh, chapter, The Art of Messaging, Chapter 5. What does she get right that Democrats can do to win over the 60% that you're saying are folks who, depending on how they feel, they can go for Trump. But if someone comes in and gives them a message like, you know what, I'll go for this Democratic Socialist or I'll go for this blue-collar Fetterman who just had a stroke, but damn it, I'll go for him, even though I voted for Trump. Yeah, and I think Anat is, is such a singular and important voice in this book. Um, and I, you know, I, I tell her story at length, length of the whole chapter, um, because I think if there's, you know, if there's a handful of people who can, could actually single-handedly turn the ship of the democratic party in a moment when it's got to reinvent itself, um, to save the country, I think she's on that absolute shortlist. Um, she is running a kind of one woman insurgency against the traditional Democratic Party approach to persuasion, which I would call persuasion by dilution, right? So you start with like a noble ideal, like healthcare for everyone, which I think broadly, everyone from Joe Manchin to AOC, like in, in the rawest form of just principle would agree to. And then to, <laughs> to persuade, you obsessively focus on white working class voters who think you're a communist. And you, uh, the real American, Anna, the real American. So you have this very, in a way, very like white supremacist mental model of who a moderate voter is, since actually there's a whole ton of like black moderate voters and Hispanic moderate voters and all kinds of moderate, but you fixate on working class white people from Pennsylvania and then you add water to the noble ideal that you started with and you whisk it. And I know, I know, uh, Waj, you're a home cook. I don't know if Danielle, you're a home cook as well. You, you whisk, you whisk the uh, noble ideal with a lot of water and then it becomes really thin gruel. And then you give it, you serve it, uh, to those people in Western Pennsylvania. And it turns out they still think you're a communist. Uh, generally. <laughs> they always still end up thinking you're a communist. Like Barack Obama did so much dilution for them on healthcare. 
And they still thought he was a communist. And meanwhile, mm. the people who brought you to the dance, as Joe Biden says, are just sad. They're just sad that they brought you to the dance. And they're sad that you're not dancing with them. And they're just, they don't have great health care. Um, I'm on Obamacare. I mean, I like President Obama a lot, but I'm on Obamacare. And like, I go to the doctor for like random things. And then like, I have to get like a test during the medical appointment from a different provider. And I forget to like check their credentials. And it's like a $4,000 bill that I get later in the mail. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry I didn't like know to check the ID of someone who came in to do like a test during my medical appointment. Like, sorry, I didn't realize that was going to cost me $4,000. Um, so we just water things down and hope that it'll appeal to the middle. And we leave everyone cold. And I think the a not approach is basically trying to turn that upside down is to say, let's persuade by actually standing firmly and bravely in place, digging our feet into the ground, into the soil. And then, having anchored ourselves a little bit, we have a little more leverage to reach out, right? If, you're, if your feet know where they're planted, you can reach out further without falling over. And so outreach in that case then means making the case for something in a more empathetic, expansive, open-hearted way. So for example... The old approach would be start with universal health care and then do like privatized whatever health care and hope that you persuade. Um, the Anat approach would be take something like Medicare for all, stick to it, but then let's call it, and this is like my interpretation of it, it's not her words, but like I would call it freedom care, right? Yep. That would be an example. Mm. I'm not changing what I'm doing. I'm appealing to your values. I'm showing a respect. Mm -hmm that your values do not include reverence for government programs. So why the fuck am I naming it after a government program, right? Your values do include freedom. And actually that's the only value, one of the only that's shared across every major political cohort in America, highest ranking value. So let me meet you where you are in that value. Let me then explain to you why it's a freedom bill right? Why this would represent liberation, why you wouldn't have to stick with your stupid job uh, instead of pursuing some business idea you've had because you would lose your health care if you left. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Or let's make a Christian case for saving the environment, right? But like, let's do the Green New Deal and, add, and have like a whole organizing project around God's creation. For Christians, right? Like, let's do the ambitious thing and then be a lot smarter about how we are organizing and base building around it to have a much wider group of people able to see themselves in it. And I think, you know, it to to Anat's point when when she came on here and 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 on uh and on woke AF, it's the idea that we as Democrats continue to seed ground and words. Right. Mm. And values to the right and have been doing so for decades. I wrote a piece the other day, you know, about taking back patriotism. Right. So you have these people that literally used a flagpole. To beat police officers on January 6th. And we have allowed them to claim the word patriotism. And in our, you know, uh, a pushback, we've turned up our noses to the word, right? Like, and allowed them to own it, allowed them to own things like family values, allowed mm. them to own things like freedom. 
And we think in our minds that, oh, people are, sm are smart and they'll understand the nuance. And I think that what we have all learned since, you know, since the, 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 the white lash to Obama is that, no, if you don't appeal to these shared values and you just allow Republicans to rock the way they've been rocking, you end up in the place that we're in right now, which is a, mar a, a margin thin line between whether or not we're going to have democracy at the end of this podcast when people are listening to it, or we're going to be going to continue that backslide of our democracy and just go, you know, headfirst into a, a new form of fascism. So I wonder with, you know, with the, with a little bit of time that we, we, we have left, you know, we started off with asking about hopefulness and frankly, again, we're, we're folks, we're, we're recording this just days before midterm elections. So we have no idea, uh, what the outcome will be, but, you know, regardless of that, um, Anon, like tell, tell us like, regardless, what should we be, what should we be doing? Come, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, mm. following this midterm election, regardless of whether it is a red wave or a blue wave, what we understand is that one election, one and done is not what saves us, is not what preserves democracy. So what do you see as the as the continuation and the path forward as we hearken back to the days of abolition of doing big things like, you know, equality uh, for for the LGBTQ community? Right. Like affirmative action, like women's equality, like if we're going to do this big thing, what does the path forward look like? I love that question so much. I, by the way, I could not I wish you could like retweet like things people say live, you know, because I, I would retweet what you just said about um, patriotism. Like it makes my blood boil. This is such an unforced error. Like it makes my blood boil that we concede patriotism to people who shoot beer bottles in their backyard Come on. to cosplay prepare for some civil war fantasy that they have. And who they cosplay as traitors, the Confederates who lost. Correct. Like, like, but it's not just them cosplaying and pretending to be having a monopoly on patriotism. Like we concede that. I, I have mm. so many yep. friends on the left who are like, patriotism is problematic. Really? Mm -hmm. Like, really? Because there's a lot of things that my country has done that I really like, right? And I had this conversation with Noam Chomsky a long time ago. He's like, it depends on, am I patriotic? It depends on whose patriotism. Is it the patriotism of the slave owners or the patriotism of abolition? Mm. Uh, it's not a given which one patriotism means. It is a completely reasonable to have an abolition-centered patriotism. Is it the pat patriotism of Jim Crow? Those people thought they were patriots. They had yep. no shyness about that. Or the patriotism of the civil rights movement. You think MLK didn't think he was a patriot? Mm. Like, mm -hmm. who are, what are, like, who, I don't understand this pose of thinking patriotism is problematic because then you're basically admitting that there's something natural in their interpretation of the country and that yours is somehow not an authentic natural, proud statement of the country. You're kind of conceding that your yep. values are like less American. I don't concede that for one bit. Yep. I don't concede that for one bit. I love those founding words. 
And I, you know, by the way, like the fact that we didn't live up to them at the beginning and have struggled to ever since is not, does not impugn those words. Those are some very, very radical words that have given the most marginalized people in this country their lodestar for the ensuing 300 years. And my family comes from India, where the idea of natural, I don't even believe in God, but like the idea of natural God-given equality, self-evident human equality, that is in India, that is, I don't think that is a widely agreed upon idea in India today, right? Mm -hmm. India, people have called it the most hierarchical society in the world. Like it is a full society built on the idea that people are naturally unequal, right? So, and more of the world was like India in the late 1700s than like what the founder said. So they were not brave enough to live up to what they wrote, but they gave us a set of marching orders that are awesome and that were a real break from prior history, real break from prior ideas and have animated every great liberation movement in this country, have given them the texts and the tools. No liberation movement in this country has ever had to say, here's some totally new idea that I would like to spring on y'all. Every liberation movement has been able to be like, uh, you wrote this, uh, there's this thing here I just saw on the uh, wall. Uh, Do you mind implementing this? It would be nice if we just, can we just do this thing that was like written right here? You know, that's a very powerful thing. That doesn't happen. You don't have that in every, so I'm, I'm a patriot of what was written in that wall and of all the people who've, you know, given enough of a shit to try to say, can we actually do what's written on the wall? Um, And so, as I look to um, the work after these midterms, the work that begins Wednesday morning, frankly, regardless of whether it's mm-hmm. a surprisingly great night for Democrats or a surprisingly great night for Republicans, there is going to be a monumental task to build a movement that can outcompete fascism. Yep. And my honest diagnosis is whether we win a seat, lose a seat, we right now are not in possession of a movement That's right. adequate yep. to the task of beating fascism. Yep. That's right. We, we might outgun it at certain moments, right? I mean, you can, right? But like, we're playing Federer here, right? Like, like if, if Federer was a like large fascist movement. And I, you know, and like, even like a really, you know, medium player might beat Federer every now and then. Um, but it is going to take to to durably beat back this authoritarian menace to to kind of get to the result that I was saying we've had every time and time again on every major extension of the blessings of liberty to more people. We're going to have to build a movement that I think does a handful of things that I wouldn't even say we're not doing well right now. Like in some cases, I don't even think we're attempting to do right now. And I'll just give you my very quick rattled off list. Like I think we need a strategy for attention. Right, I think the right understands commanding attention, and we just don't have a politics of attention. We don't get it. The exceptions, like AOC, prove the rule. Like what what she's doing is like what every politician should be able to do in the twenty first century. If you want to actually move anything, and we can't have one person who knows how to do it. Um, second, meaning making. Right, this is a confusing time. Racial change, gender change, globalization, China. These are all things that have changed everybody's life. We have a lot of people we're essentially trying to manage down from privilege, unearned privilege. We have just a whole bunch of like climate change, like a whole bunch of people working in an area that we're trying to say like, sorry, like the industries you've spent your life in that your granddaddy and daddy spent, 
no good anymore. Like all of these are like really big shifts we're asking people to go through for mostly good causes. But I think we've totally failed to help people process leaving behind the old them. Who is the new them? Are they going to be okay with the new them? Uh, will they be happy on the other side of the mountain? Um, I think we have to do a way better job of meeting voters where they are, not having high barriers to entry for a progressive movement. We need to be a progressive movement, self-confident enough that if you don't know the terms, you can still come in and you can actually learn the terms yeah. in our space. Yeah. You, yeah. you don't have to learn the terms yeah. on the street by yourself uh, and then ring the doorbell once you're you know, uh, totally woke. Um, I think we need more of a sense of fight, pick fights, uh, name names, you know, generatively scapegoat, actual vi villains, you know, um, not be so scared of, of uh, going low when they go low. Um, I think we need a party that is actually physically rooted in people's lives. We, we have to stop being an extremely online movement, chip in mm -hmm. $5 movement. Every building in our major cities and every you know block in the suburbs should have a Democratic Party representative who is someone you call when you get a weird letter from the IRS and you need some help, right? That's, those were the kinds of, as Bhaskar Sankara has written, those were the kinds of parties, left labor parties in the 20th century around the yep. world that, that won big. They were rooted. Every tenement building, just, that was like the Democratic Party lady on the third floor. And you'd go up and she, you know, I, I, I have no idea in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, like who I would go to if I had a problem from the Democratic Party. It's just not a thing that exists anymore. And finally, I think, you know, to go back to the patriotism thing, we have to tell the better story about America. Yep. Right now, our policy agenda is you know, clearly superior. We're not liars. We're not idiots. Um, I don't think we're telling the better story about America. And I don't think that's anybody's fault but ours. I think, you know, uh, it's a, again, it's an unforced error. I think we have an amazing, amazing story to tell. I think the kind of country we're trying to build, uh, you know, we've got three, three different children of, of uh, immigrants in this country on this uh, podcast. This is, this is the American dream. Come to America and get a podcast. Um, <laughs> and host like, a podcast. You know, I mean, let's be honest, right? And I, I don't mean shade to any other countries, but I like to sometimes be honest about a certain kind of exceptionalism that is true. Like, this wouldn't be a podcast in India. Like, India is a country right. for Indian people. You know, like most well, countries. Not for not me. You, maybe you all, but I'd be like, I'd be running for my life. <laughs> exactly. Like China, like China is for Chinese people. You know, it. The, China is not trying to be a country of the world. Frankly, all these countries in Europe, they have their safe. 15, 20% brown people, but like they're keeping it in those, but those are white countries. Yep. Those are yep. white countries, right? Britain, white country, like London's great, but like that's a white country with some people in it who, that are kept at an appropriate level for them, right? We are trying to do something really different, much more fun with much better food and much harder, which is to build a true country made of the world right? A true mm. superpower of color. We're, we're doing it. It is happening in our lifetimes. Like if you live in New York or California, you already live in it and it's, it's coming for everyone. And I don't think we tell a galvanizing, thrilling story about what an awesome pursuit this is. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. 
You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Anand, real quick, uh, you know, it's it's the ethnic Avengers. That's what I always say. And, you know, uh, Danielle's given me the wrap up, but I'm going to use my privilege and power as co-host to ask one last quick question, because it's something that regardless of what happens uh, on Tuesday or Wednesday morning, uh, I agree with you. Danielle agrees with you. We've talked about it every week that we have to fight fascism and that we're dealing with the fascist movement. And the analogy I've always given is a flabby moderate majority will be carved like butter against a zealous organized minority, right? If you don't organize, doesn't matter if you have the numbers. But there is something to be said about fighting, but also forgiving. There is something to be said about reaching out and communicating. There is something to be said about when do you resist and when do you give a hug? And there's a chapter in your book, and very quick, it's called Can Love Change a Mind? And as we're dealing with a fascist movement that is emboldened with hate, conspiracy theories, racism, and literally dehumanizes the three people on this panel, the final question I have very quickly is when do we and when should we and how should we exercise love in the fight against fascism and as we build this multicultural coalition to save democracy? Mm -hmm. Beautiful question. I, in many ways, understand what I'm advocating here to be a politics of love, which I don't think is a politics of sweetness uh, and, you know, candy and roses. I think a politics of love is both a generous thing and a muscular thing and a, and a feisty thing and a, mm. and, a, and a thing with boundaries, right? Love, good, good love has boundaries. I think the, one of the key questions for me, we have to make a couple kinds of distinctions to handle this right. And I think we're right now lumping when we think about the fascism problem, and I do this too, just a a whole lot of different things together that are quite meaningful to separate. Number one is leaders from followers, Mm. right? I think as Democrats, opposition to fascism, we need to be harder on the leaders than we are being right now and gentler on followers in general relative to leaders and recognize a distinction right? There's a way in which I think at our worst, we sometimes treat a person watching Fox News and a billionaire ruining that person's mind as sort of the same level of moral culpability. Mm. And in part, because the people who watch it are like closer to us and we can reach them, we can actually yell at them. Rupert Murdoch is protected from our anger. We don't know him. We know people who are his victims. And so one of the things that several of my subjects said to me in different ways is like, we just have to distinguish victims from perpetrators. Now, 
what the problem with fascism is some of these victims are also themselves perpetrators, but they are low level perps right. of fascism versus like like the cartel bosses of fascism. I just think yeah, we need like they're clarity. not the capos or the mob bosses, <laughs> right? And so then the question becomes in that the people who are not the Rupert Murdochs, I think again there you have to distinguish the kind of 20% who I was talking about before who really wants fascism in America. Okay. Who've read the books, they've watched the videos, and I think them you got to also kiss down the river. Right? Though you're not persuading those people, I don't think those people need your love. Right? Mm. I think where the love and the mercy comes in is a bunch of people in that 60% in the middle, about half of whom right now are like fash curious, right? <laughs> oh, and, shit. And they, you know, fash adjacent, fash curious, fash open curious. to fash. And they're like, they've definitely voted with it a couple times, if not more. Um, they, harbor the more latent kind of racism rather than the like, you know, burning churches kind of racism that might be more in that more extreme group. They also have contradictory impulses, sentiments, commitments. They are embarrassed for their children to think they're mm. prejudiced. There's just other things going on in that group. And I think rather than just like spraying love everywhere, I think we need to be very clear about a kind of strategic approach to that group of people that is not letting anybody off the hook, that's not not holding people accountable, et cetera, et cetera, but that is a strategically loving politics that says, like, you actually really want to come with us, like, or at least a bunch of you really want to come with us. Our parties are more fun. Our food is way tastier and spicier. Our vision of America is more enthralled. Like you will have more fun in our America. Like you will like yourself more. Like you will be okay. Like your wife will become empowered and like it will actually be fine. Like you'll you'll be great. It's actually great when like your wife makes more money than you because that's just money in your house that you can enjoy. You know, like that group of people who are not deeply ideologically committed to this dystopian fascistic direction, but who are like vibing themselves into it or, or, or joiners flowing with the crowd into it. That is the group. That is who we need to be thinking about. That is where our organizing failure is right now. That's where the messaging failure is right now. And the goal, as you know, is never to get, you know, all 60 or, or half of the 30%. If, you, if in this country, you get in a given year, 3% of that 30 to say, I like that guy, or I like that issue, or the Dobbs decision is beyond what I'm willing to brook, or whatever. That 3% is a difference in heaven and hell in this country, right? It's just, yep. it's just a, Pennsylvania, so, yeah. Michigan, Wisconsin, so Nevada, Arizona, love. Georgia. Exactly. So it's a politics of love with a very strategic understanding of what the goal is here which is to have enough people who are not quite morally committed and morally certain say, you know what? What they're saying actually feels, feels better to me. Feels better to me. And I'm not able to change my full being to be part of their movement, but I'm going to just go with their movement. 
So Anand is saying, don't spread love everywhere, but reach out to the fash curious, be strategic, win them over, and maybe we can convince them that not only is the food more delicious in a multiracial democracy, the sex is better too, if you're fash curious. Join our side. The book is The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. This was a supersized episode of Democracy-ish with Anand Giridharadas right before the midterm elections. And regardless of what happens, folks, this is a long-term fight. This is a long-term fight. And there's a reason why we call this podcast Democracy-ish, is that democracy is under attack right now by forces of fascism. But we have the numbers. We have the better food. We have the better story. We have the better politics. We're better looking. I'm just going to say it. Uh, Our parties are more fun and we still have work to do. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Ujjad And we will be back next week if, in fact, we still have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.